A few questions listeners might have before we get started. Do I need to know anything about moral philosophy before I read this book? No, you do not. My goal was to write a book that anyone could understand, regardless of your familiarity with the subject. It's intended as an introduction to these ideas for relative laypeople, like I was when I began reading up. So you're not a philosopher, or a professor, or even a grad student? No, I'm just like a guy. But that's the point. Everyone holding this book is just a guy, or a lady, or someone who's concerned with how to behave, or a person who has gifted this book on how to be a better person by a friend and is only now realizing that maybe it was some kind of veiled hint. Other not interested in ethics types who might theoretically be holding this book right now include a guy who needs something heavy to squash a bug, a kid from the 1950s who's using it to hide his comic book during class, a woman who got it from her office secret Santa and needs to flip through the first few pages to try to convince her coworker Terence that he made a good choice and she definitely wouldn't rather have gotten booze like everyone else, a dog who got this book in his mouth somehow and now everyone around him is like, haha, check it out, Buster's trying to read. If I want to learn about moral philosophy, why would I read your book instead of a breakdown from some smarter professor type person? First of all, that's rude, but more importantly, I spent a lot of time studying this stuff and discussing it with some very smart and funny people, trying to present it in a way that doesn't give everyone a tension headache. My goal here isn't to revolutionize the field of moral philosophy. It's simply to relay its nuts and bolts so that we can all apply it to our real lives. Okay, you're just some guy. Then who the hell are you to judge me? Yeah, I thought you might ask this question. So listen. This book is in no way meant to make you feel bad about whatever dumb stuff you've done in your life. It is certainly not meant to suggest I haven't done a bunch of dumb stuff in my life because I definitely have and continue to. Nobody is perfect. As we'll see in Chapter 5, moral perfection is both impossible to attain and a bad idea to even attempt. Again, the goal is to embrace our inevitable failures and find a way to get some use out of them to learn ways to benefit when we make mistakes instead of just stewing in our own guilt, doomed to make those same mistakes all over again. I am a smart professor-type person, and I'm furious. You only discuss the works of a few of the great philosophers. How could you possibly ignore the work of so many important thinkers? Moral philosophy has been around for thousands of years, and every new theory relates in some way to theories that came before it. Sometimes you'll be hacking your way through a dense philosophical tome and you'll come upon a 60-page digression where the author discusses some other dense philosophical tome, and if you haven't already fought your way through that tome, you get hopelessly lost, your eyes glaze over, and you just put the book down and watch The Bachelor. Hypothetically. I mean, I never did this, but hypothetically, that is something that someone would do. If I had tried to cover all of moral philosophy, I would have done nothing but read books for 60 years and then died, and I have kids and a wife, and I like to watch basketball and stuff. Not to mention that some philosophy I did try to read was just incomprehensible to me. At one point, I got really excited about metaphysics, which dates back to the ancient Greeks and involves questions about the very nature of existence. Sounds fun! I opened a book called Introduction to Metaphysics by the German philosopher Martin Heidegger, 
and the very first sentence with translator footnotes sounded something like this. Why are there things? Footnote 1. Why is perhaps not even the right question. Better to ask how or to what end. Footnote 2. We are obviously making a priori assumptions that there are, indeed, things. Footnote 3. Heidegger employs the German word Ich schatze de müde Stockzutschlagen, which has no direct translation. So I have chosen the crude English word there, which is a tragic and grievous misrepresentation of Heidegger's intent. Footnote 4. Things might be better thought of as loci of existence, or perhaps the neologism essence, meaning things that have essence, or perhaps a new word I just made up called blurf, which has no meaning at all, but is somehow, in its nonsensical non-meaning, the most accurate word one can use to delineate the difference between nothingness and somethingness. That's a slight exaggeration, but only slight. I gave up after maybe four more sentences. Also, later, I found out that Heidegger was basically a fascist, so I feel like I made the right call. But there's another reason I included what I included and ignored what I ignored. The works discussed in this book are simply the ones I liked and connected with. They're the ones that made sense to me in a cartoon light bulb turning on above my head kind of a way. This simple sense of connection matters with something like philosophy, which is a massive and diverse rainforest of ideas. No one explorer can map the whole jungle, so you end up gravitating towards certain thinkers and away from others based on nothing more complicated than how much they resonate with you. My understanding of ethics, and thus the crux of this book, is organized broadly around a group of theories, virtue ethics, deontology, and utilitarianism, which are currently thought of as the big three in Western moral philosophy. That focus marginalizes some of the most famous thinkers in history, like Lao Tzu, David Hume, and John Locke, all of whose writings overlap with one of these big three theories, but maybe aren't integral to them. Also, because I wanted The Good Place to be secular, I shied away from religious thinkers like St. Thomas Aquinas and Soren Kierkegaard. Should the ideas in this book pique your interest and you grab a compass and head into the jungle yourself, it's very likely that some of the folks I mostly ignored will become your personal favorites. And then you can write your own book and talk about why your people are better than my people. I am a different very smart professor type person, and I must say you have completely misinterpreted something. How could you have so blatantly misread that thing? In 1746, a group of British booksellers asked Dr. Samuel Johnson to write a definitive dictionary of the English language. Over the next eight years, he did just that. He wrote an entire dictionary using only his own brain. And several assistants who helped him collect and organize all the entries, but the point stands. Johnson got paid the equivalent of about $250,000 in today's money for eight years of work. I hate to be Hollywood about this, but that dude needed a better agent. After he was done, a woman approached him, annoyed, and asked him how he could have possibly defined a pastern as the knee of a horse when it is actually part of the foot. Johnson replied, ignorance, madam, pure ignorance. The point is, if I got something wrong, that's the reason, pure ignorance. 
wouldn't it have been smart to have someone help you with this? An actual, you know, philosopher? Ah, but I did. Professor Todd May, longtime professional academic and author of several excellent books on moral philosophy. Todd and I met when I asked him to help the writing staff of The Good Place figure out what the hell any philosopher was ever talking about, and he then agreed to collaborate with me on this book to spot me, as it were, and help me not screw up the scholarship so badly that I get sued by Jeremy Bentham's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids. So actually, now that I think about it, if there are any problems with the philosophy in this book, it's not because of my ignorance. It's Todd's fault. Blame him. Note from Todd. Fair enough.